Welcome to Behind the White Scarves. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to part two of our very first interview with Alex and Sharon in 2019. As before, this is going to dig into all of phase one, so be prepared for spoilers, and yes, more than a few editorial comments from me, fresh thoughts on where we are now in comparison to over four years ago. Let's get right into it. This is the second Q&A show featuring questions from community members. Hello to Greg Downing. I'm your Potts. And hello to Toby Jungius. Well, hi there. We had a pretty elaborate and thought-provoking show last time, so I've been looking forward to this particular follow-up. Gentlemen, fire away with the questions we didn't have time for the first go-round, and maybe if Sharon and I are on the ball with our answers, we will have time for some new ones. Oh, fantastic. Okay, I guess I'll go first. Sharon, as the editor of the Books of New Century, what does that entail, and what are some examples of the changes you have had to make to ensure the stories work as well as they can as pieces of literature? Well, uh, it editing the books has changed over the course of publishing them, not least because... Alex's spelling and grammar has improved no end. <laughs> it could be at best described at the beginning as infantile. I wouldn't quite go that far. Cartographers was a little bit different to the others because it's all monologue pieces mm-hmm. um, for the most part. So really that was a, a very collaborative one where we focused on kind of layout and um, obviously structure and grammar and, and all the rest of it. As we progressed, Alex would write them in script form first and then as he was working on the recording part with the actors, I would take the written material away, the the script pieces away and literally just go through them in Word documents, changing them from script to uh, text speech and Mm. throwing a few sentences in here and there to kind of link things together that didn't have to happen too much and it's definitely got less as we've gone on because Alex has got a lot more confident I think in being able to write prose from scratch yeah to narrate the scenes from the point of view of one of the characters so you end up with quite a bit of uh, of observational prose which will in the audio just be one person speaking but I don't have to do too much to that when it comes to editing it in, into a book right. so from that perspective my job's got a lot easier as time's gone on most recently I think uh, let them go was probably the first one that was this way completely Alex actually wrote as a book first and then Mm -hmm. converted to script for the 
recording. I didn't really even convert it that much. I just highlighted just the, the individual yeah, you just took the speech, bits. Didn't you? So, so there was, everyone got their own specific colour. Exactly. I've been doing so that was, for a while in hmm. New Century, but but I think New uh, Let Them Go was the first one that you really did that from start to finish. Well, if you remember, the Princess Thieves was the one that was the most heavily scripty and needed the most mm. serious overhaul to turn it into a book. That's, That's why there right. was a disparity between the yeah. release of the audio book and the release of the actual novel. Mm. Yeah. So I think I learned from that and just went straight in from the ground up, yeah. you know, writing Let Them Go as a novel, which I don't know how it ended up as uh, as the tightest of, of all of them so far, but I think that probably helped, mm. just knowing that it was going to be word for word. Yeah. I don't know if this is something Alex got into when we interviewed them in 2020 after the release of the Uncivil Outlaw audio drama. But apparently, the experience of writing Let Them Go first was a major step, since that's how Alex has done everything going forwards. Even prior to the writing block of 2020, Alex released the follow-up to Steamheart, Uncivil Outlaw, in novel format first in early January of that year. Once more, I ponder the effect of this choice on New Century. Not only was its release instrumental to Toby and I teaming up to make Through the Wind Door, but getting new stories out quicker by releasing the novel and then taking more time to make the audio drama had a knock-on effect. We made a brand new show just to get out our immediate reactions on Stone Spring Maidens, Panther Soul, Nightfall of the Wendigo, and Back in Time Plus Space out while they were fresh, and that was an enormous boost for Alex's creativity. It's something we never did with Uncivil Outlaw, but then the audio drama for that also took less time, since it was written with Alex and Sharon being able to do most of the voice recording on their own. Um, and certainly in terms of the actual writing side of it, I wouldn't say that I edit much apart from, as I said, making sure that all the, the punctuation and the grammar is, is as accurate as it can be. And maybe doing a little bit of rewording here and there, but not much. I think the most significant part of the editing that I do now is actually when Alex is still in the writing phase what he'll generally do is he'll write a few chapters and then we'll sit down and go through them together we'll read them out loud see how they sound see if there's any alliteration where alliteration shouldn't be or a, a word that gets repeated yeah. too much saying it out loud means that you you notice when someone says actually so many times yeah. in in the one paragraph you're like oh Christ <laughs> But if you haven't read that, if you haven't read that out loud, you might be able to skim past it. Indeed. So really, I think, although I do still describe myself as the, the editor of the books, from that perspective, all I really do these days is, is sort of a final polish. She's selling herself short. She's an absolutely crucial sounding board <laughs> stage and helping me shape not just how it sounds, but how it feels. Never sell short the edit. Thankfully... I had some skill editing written works prior to this, and that experience was highly important when learning how to self-edit a podcast. Everything Alex and Sharon said about editing is right on, especially when talking about how speaking something aloud can help you figure out what is more appealing for the audience to both read and hear. 
Similarly, most of the cast do that to some degree when we uh, I get their lines done, especially if they're working with me. We can sometimes figure out a better way for them to say mm. something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe a better way of describing what I do these days then would be creative edit- editor rather than book editor. If any of the listeners were feeling like parts of the previous interview were heavy because I started off with asking about the effects of the current political climate on New Century, uh, buckle in because it's, it's only going to get heavier from here. <laughs> the next question, in your writing, you have both highlighted and explored sexuality of various characters, uh, including Harriet and Abigail, uh, Jeremy and Hrow. In the case of the last one, her asexuality is implied by her behavior rather than addressed explicitly. Given the recent utter failure of a prominent video game designer to give asexuality proper research and respect, does this make you want to address Rao's sexuality explicitly in future novels, and how would you go about doing so? For those that are curious, the designer in question was Hideo Kojima, after asexuality was ham-fistedly introduced in a piece of in-world lore in Death Stranding. It made waves at the time, but clearly didn't have a lasting impact, because I had to look it up after re-listening to my own question. 2019 also had one of the best depictions of an ace character in The Outer Worlds, and the woman in question, Parvati Holcomb, felt not unlike Harry Arlington. But I digress. This also makes me think of what Joe Rowling does with the sexuality of her characters, the Mm. retrospective... Uh, homosexuality of Dumbledore and then given every possible chance to explore this actually within at least one of two new films released since then abjectly refusing to do so we haven't yet released our Crimes of Grindelwald episode but it's coming folks the Grindelwald episode did not come out till mid-February of 2020 its estimation already having been brought low by poor filmmaking and Depp's spousal abuse allegations. But Rowling's turf opinions were made widely known by her own tweets in December of 2019, mere months after this interview. So, chalk up something bad that got worse in record time. To a degree, Harouse sexuality was something that I realized later in the game in Tiger's Eye that I didn't go in expecting that to be... Her. I, I, I didn't think, right, now, who can I figure out that I can ship with Harau when I first <laughs> created her? For no other reason than she's kind of uh, began life as my animus anyway. Mm. So, but she took on so much more of Maureen's traits as, as we went along. And by the end, I think that what I was trying to depict was a marriage uh, between, a, a polyamorous marriage between her, Hucker, and two other tigers, Sashel, who we meet earlier in the book and seems concerned about Haral, which puts a new scope on their connection. And the other is Nos, who was the first wife of Brask, Hucker's shaman teacher, who, when he left the village, left his house and wife behind. The important thing was that Haral felt kind of isolated within that relationship, and mm. that a lot of what she got out of that was her cub, and she fixated on her cub so that when her cub was taken from her, she kind of lost all interest in, in everything else and just got caught in a very unhealthy pattern. 
it, retrospectively, all that time she was asexual and not particularly mm. interested in the, um, the the physical side of companionship, but definitely interested in companionship mm. and the, the domestic element and the the wanting yeah. that relationships and. It's possible, I think, that the uh, polyamorous relationship of having a lot of people around who you know were all affectionate with each other was appealing to her. Mm. It is important to specify that asexuality is a spectrum, and one can be asexual but not aromantic. Once more, Parvati of the Other Worlds is a great example. Never mind that even people that don't want sex and don't want romance still need positive human touch to some degree. Humans are social creatures, and so, I expect, are the cats of Rama. Still, at this point, I think we were all still learning about the complexity of the A-spectrum. But, because we're doing this at a, at a time where, in, in her culture, asexuality isn't really explored, it's not necessarily shunned, but it's kind of questioned in, in a sort of, well, why, why would you be like that way? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's definitely not really explored in, in Victorian uh, and frontier times, mm-hmm. so there isn't the context within the current worlds I have to talk about that. However, what I can do with not just asexuality, but um, the whole LGBTQ spectrum can actually be applied to other characters further on with multiple instances of representation rather than going, right, I need a gay. Here's a gay. Um, (laughs) I can have... A bunch of different kind, like even Steamheart had, you know, you had a, a, a gay guy, you had a bisexual woman, you had a gay woman just kind of feeling out where she stood in that whole thing. And you've got her owl being asexual. And more besides that I haven't specified. Though again, simply specifying is like saying, you know, girls can be scientists. <gasps> Moving on. You have to explore that. But the more instances there are of each, the more I can explore the persuasions without making it this is what all trans people are like and pointing a finger um because ultimately it's it's impossible to be anything other than a window in a vast collection of windows in that scenario and the my best bet in that case would be to research as much as i can talk to as many people as i can who are within that particular bracket and get their perspectives on this so uh, uh, the, the, in answer to your question, more and more examples are required. I don't think I'm ever going to make a huge deal out of Harao's asexuality. She's not going to get into a major argument with someone about it. But there will be other asexual characters within the story. It would certainly be completely telling of certain parts of America that if they learned of that, they would meet this purple tiger from another world and then go, yeah, yeah, that's fine and all, but I just don't get why you're not into dudes. Hmm. <laughs> Another thing that's uh, probably like worth flagging a little harder is uh, Robin is bisexual, uh, and he kind of tipped his head a little bit near the end when he uh, made a comment about... Um, I can't believe this. I shall be remembered for naught but in buggerance. Lord Aaron, please, you had no idea. I kissed him. I put my tongue in his mouth. In your defence, my lord... For a man, that is an extraordinarily pretty specimen. I'd probably kiss him too. Robbie, no one shut up. Sorry. I would, though. (laughs) 
This moment is funny to me in part because I just got done editing a show about Doctor Who with Kevin and Jesse. And there were a number of little moments Kevin reminded me of where the ninth and 10th Doctors also tipped a hat towards being by before going more full-on recently as the 14th Doctor. It's an important step, though, because when Alex gets around to writing Colo Nash in Panthersol, he almost spends more time being openly admiring of men or male-presenting forms than he does of women. And it's all very believable. Gotta walk before you can run. I need a Lando for Robin, and I've got one in mind, but it needs to be someone that Robin's had an actual physical relationship in, in the past with, and that that can be a thing, as opposed to just kind of little nod and a wink. It needs to be something that's actually kind of part of his personality. Because mm. like, for no other reason, you don't get many bisexual male heroes ever. They had one in Game of Thrones and smashed his head like a fucking watermelon. You, you do occasionally get bisexual male sneaky elf types. Yeah. That if there's oh. if there's a trope for that particular, and it's like watch uh, out for him; he'll yeah. fuck anything. That's, yeah. But that's the thing. I turned that yeah. on its head with Robin in the whole. Watch out for Robin; he'll fuck anything. And then, as it <laughs> turns out, he's actually fairly stand up as a guy. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I went out of my way to elaborate on that. I just didn't really have time or space to flag that a bit harder. But it's there, and I will be exploring that later. Mm. And the nag <laughs> is most likely pansexual. Seeing this. Lord Aaron's eyes flared, and he suddenly lunged forward, unsheathing his saber. You denied me two kingdoms, you wretched peasants! He nearly reached them, but found a golden and very pointy horn, neatly jabbing against his breastplate. The nag scowled. You've lost nothing that wouldn't have been stolen, and you call them thieves. She stole my dignity! Kissing a man doesn't make you any less of one. Refusing to take your defeat with good graces most definitely does. All right. Um, <laughs> the parts of that were a good lead into Toby's new question, so fire away. Okay. So, how did you approach the theme of loss in Steamheart and Phase One in general without resorting only to character death? Hmm. I looked at this question earlier and thought hard. Um, I'm going to give a really short answer to this one, uh, and that is grief is about the life you thought you were going to have. Mm. And there's so many more things that can happen to a person than simply they're killed. And Mm. there's so many more ways of exploring grief than simply have a person die and other people miss them. The original recording just had a long space where Toby and I found ourselves with little to say, as we tried to figure out where to go from there. I think now we'd be better at responding in the moment, but in direct response to his words, I'd add that the way Alex and the cast of New Century are able to write and perform and tap into this fundamental idea has always been one of the things I've loved most about these stories. Recently, after reading Castle of the Moon, I half-joked at Alex that he should be glad that I love the way he hurts me. Thing is, it's not really a joke. And Alex does know how to bring out hard-hitting death when necessary. 
just look at Let Them Go and A Castle of the Moon, stories that have a bunch of it. But there are many ways to make your audience feel deeply. And being able to feel grief and sadness and despair in a safe space like fiction is invaluable. Alex just happens to be very good at it. Especially for me. There's not much more to say other than that because it hits so true. And I think that there are so many moments in Steamheart where you see the lives that characters have laid before them or what they thought was going to be before them. And it, it just... Sorry, I'm having... Mm. It's okay. Yeah. I did feel yeah. um, a, a little bit with uh, Annie that when she discusses with uh, Abigail uh, in the chapter Where Are You Going to Be uh, at the mm. turn of the century, that was a, a relatively new chapter near the end of the uh, the book. I went back and, and figured, okay, they... Since this whole book, one of the core relationships is Abby and Annie and how they play off each other. And actually, within this book, after initially uh, rubbing up against one another the wrong way in secret rooms, start to become really close friends. And so then there's that breaking and the parting of the ways when uh, Abigail fucks around on the edge of the cliff. And just to to bring Annie to a, a point where she can finally point a finger and go, right, I knew it. I fucking knew it. It, you needed to feel that something was really lost at that stage. And that really bugged Loretta, by the way. She she didn't like the fact that uh, Abigail did that. And she felt that Abigail was being really unfair. I also feel that Abigail was being really unfair. <laughs> but mm. she's like that. She's, uh, she's very knee-jerk, and she does shit which she regrets deeply later on, which is very a very human trait, which is why that death scene is so palpable because abigail's looking back on the the last words that they really exchanged in anger um but when they have the conversation about where they're going to be i feel like i dropped the ball on annie knowing what was going to happen to her at the end of this book she almost gives a white picket fence this is what i want to do i want to retire i want to be a dressmaker i want to hang up my guns i want to have an unexceptional life and just be happy with my husband who hopefully won't be killing either. And that's very much a a thing whereby if it's a war movie, that person's dead in the next scene. So maybe I, I strung it out a lot longer than uh, the average um, trite script writer, but I do feel I flagged it a little bit too much. Toby and I talked a lot about Annie's death during the retrospective, but I don't think we really talked about whether he and I expected Annie to die if this chapter was ever a red flag to us. Yes, when Alex explains it, we can see and get that it is a common enough trope. Yes, the very beginning of the book says not all of us would come back. But I think that so many other things happen that it still came out of nowhere for us, and the long episode we did lays out all the reasons why it took us by surprise. In a few minutes, you'll even hear me address a bit of that in the interview. Again, this speaks to how engaging the writing is, that we are so caught up in the moment, in being the audience, experiencing the thing with the characters, that our analytical brains turn off, and we stop noticing storytelling patterns. You then ask, um, where's Abigail going to be? And she doesn't know. 
And I think mm. that's because I'm I'm trying to keep Abigail's uh, options open, and I, I don't have a. She, there's a lot of things Abigail wants to do, and they aren't necessarily a being thing. They're a having done thing, mm. which is maybe why the collection of autographs is emblematic of that aspect of Abigail's character, because mm. it's a small and very understandable thing it's not something too huge that she can't wrap her head around how she's going to achieve that goal it's if i meet these people i can get their autographs and that will be there and that will have left a mark but it's not something which i suppose even she knows it's not something that she can get a full complete collection of because some of the people aren't alive anymore yes i think that definitely speaks to that part of Abigail's character where she doesn't know everything that she wants to do, but Mm. she has some things that she knows here and now are important and she will want to work towards. Mm. It's all small goals, isn't it? You know, Mm. one of the goals is getting the signatures. One of the goals is rising in the ranks of the cartographers. Not necessarily, I mean, on some level she wants to, but it's more because it's a thing that she feels that she can do. And focusing on the small goals, therefore, makes it easier to be- – the fact that she doesn't have any large goals, not like, not like Annie does. Mm-hmm. Um, That's not really true, although I likely said that at the time because I was focusing on Steamheart and specifically on, like was said, that she doesn't have goals regarding what she wants to be like Tabitha and Annie did. She has untidy parts of herself that she wants on some level to resolve, but that's not the same thing. Also in regards to, oh, I I wanted a white picket fence, I want that's a flag that something horrible is going to happen, it's easy to see that in hindsight, but to be perfectly honest, and this will segue nicely into the next question, Mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't see it coming, because I identified Annie so heavily as the Captain America of this group. Mm-hmm. She may not have been the protagonist or, or the, the, the duo of protagonists in Secret Rooms. She's the, she's the mentor figure. She's the one that leads them into the rest of the world. But she's at the forefront of the cover of people on Steamheart – the irony here is that the cover we got to see originally was not the one Alex had intended. It was going to be Harry's marvelous machine itself, the steam heart trekking through overgrown woods. But due to outside issues, that cover wasn't ready yet. And Alex was worried that a cover filled with all of its main characters was going to be too revealing of potential plot. So I guess it fooled all of us anyway much like Carol Danvers being far too prominent on the box art for the Endgame Blu-ray. More than anybody else, more than Butler or anybody, she's the one I associated as the the tip of the spear. So when all of that suddenly came crashing to a halt, it was like a knife in the back, but I don't want to say that in in a bad way. That's mm. I, I don't feel personally betrayed. All of it makes sense. 
I, I didn't see it coming. That bit relates to the actual <clears throat> positioning of Annie at the absolute front. It relates to a moment in Fellowship of the Ring. Ooh, this is going to be hard to get through just talking about it. I know, uh, yeah. Uh, it's just as Gandalf falls. Fly, you fools! And Frodo screams, and every, it's, it's that moment when Haral falls. And uh, in Fellowship... Aragorn has this look on his face like <gasps> I've now got to lead these people I've now got mm. to do all of this I've got to pick up and I've been depending and depending on Gandalf to be able to lead indefinitely and now suddenly it's on me nobody really felt that with uh, Harau because she wasn't leading they just felt that uh, she was this link to another world and, and a sign that they were actually doing something right and she and Miguel and their relationship suggested that there's actually something they can do that's positive with this apparently otherwise terrible occurrence of these portals, and then she's gone. But at the end of Annie's arc, when she goes, that's Abigail. That's why she's uh, given the captain role at the end. She's now appointed to leader, and... There's a very specific reason why Butler rose to the rank of Major and I kept Annie as a captain. We do tend to associate a certain respectable authority with captains more than higher-ranking officers. They're the doers, the people that lead from the front, by example. Admirals and generals are often more associated with being obstacles rather than heroes. There's even a joke at one point in the comics that Carol Danvers, when she takes on the mantle of Captain Marvel, is that she's technically higher in rank than Steve Rogers. Rogers only ever rose to the rank of Captain in the army, where Danvers was eventually given the rank of Colonel. But that doesn't change the inherent symbolism of being a Captain. Kirk, Picard, Sisko, and all the rest in Star Trek. Captain Sheridan in Babylon 5. Reynolds, Sparrow, Nemo, Harkness, even Han Solo himself. All of them were called Captain. And that sticks with us. So I think we've been circling around this question and maybe because it, like we don't want to dive any further into Annie's final moments than we already are, but I think we'll... I think I'm going to go ahead and guide us to it anyway. So one of the hardest hitting parts of Steamheart was Annie Oakley's final moments. There is important thematic weight to it. And you have also talked about the imperative you felt to give her back to history. But in addition to this, there have been intimations that even the characters that are entirely your creation, you don't know how long any of them will last in phase two and beyond. So can you tell us about your process that brings you to give a final end to a character's story? In truth, there aren't many that I know the absolute end of. There aren't many that I absolutely can't kill, uh, as in most of them are fair game. I have to keep that as a, a possibility, because if I'm dealing with invincible avatars, I can't get scared for them, and that's important. If I've got... Uh, Jeremy in the middle of a very dangerous scenario and I'm like, well, Jeremy doesn't die, he's all right, uh, then I can't write from the perspective of 
Jeremy might actually die here. He's a very fragile guy amongst uh, a, a lot of seriously dangerous people sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's a choice. A choice few that I picked have suffered so much that I have decided they have to live as long as New Century does. So that itself still doesn't guarantee their ongoing survival. And there are a couple, a bunch who are underrepresented in other media in a way that makes killing them make me look like a prick. There is a, uh, a trope called kill your gaze, which yeah. is where you have quite often two lesbians and you kill one of them so that the other one can be sad and it's like poking the audience going, see, don't you feel sad for this lesbian? See, lesbians are like you and I, only they just happen to fancy someone else of the same gender. And it's a little blunt. And Ugh. often it's the only gay couple in the whole thing. And it's, it reinforces the theme that if you're not straight, then your life is do- doomed to be tragic. Tragic, yeah. Which is mm. something Dehumanizing. That, yeah, absolutely. And the only way to really... Um, combat that is to either not kill any gay people ever and they basically walk through with a fucking ultra shield which means ah all of those bullets and yet i miraculously survived or better gay as hell make loads and loads of characters uh, of different lgbtq spectrum points so that you can maybe kill someone who's gay because it's okay because you've got four people over here who are also gay and still alive and therefore it doesn't feel like you're saying all gay people are doomed to this i've got a couple picked out that i know i'm definitely not going to kill but like i said to feel for them to really feel i have to keep the safety off if that makes sense You're, this is your method writing then you you have to be able to tap into the emotions in order to write the kind of stuff that will invoke those emotions in others yeah well if, if i'm not caring about them i can't expect other people to mm. and since this the plot of these stories is there to service the characters rather than the other way around. It may be a very you know, dense, intricate plot, but that is illusory. It is about these characters that I've built and we've built together. And uh, it's about exploring ourselves through the characters and the characters through the plot. But at the bottom of this pile comes plot. All right. Well, the, again, one question leads right into the next. One of the things that you mentioned in the Steam Heart Roundtable is is that you do have an established arc in mind for Harau as well as an end to her story. But, you know, as you just established, you don't have a clear idea on what route other characters will take, specifically highlighting uh, the relationship between Abigail and James. Phase 1 itself went through many changes, not to mention the inclusion of an entirely new work, Let Them Go, and now Two I know... Two new works. It's Christmas yeah, pre- So how much of your past and future work do you plan out in advance, and what do you think the likelihood is that some of the things you have in set in stone now might change later? Okay. I have, at this point, 18 books roughly laid out with room for mm. more. Uh, that That's is including <laughs> that is including the uh, the eight you've already had so far. So there's uh, there's ten more in my head laid out uh, before I get to an ending. Even this has already changed a lot since our interview. One of our early episodes of Through the Window was on the reveal of all the books of Phase Two, which included seven different titles. 
7 out of 10, according to his words here. As of this recording, Phase 2 has been done in its entirety, and includes 5 of those 7 originally planned books. The last one written, Castle of the Moon, is the start of Phase 3, and is also a book not originally planned by Alex. Listen to our show on it for more on that. One of those books heralded in 2020 has become two books, Thief Knights and Dragonflights, and then The Worst Unicorn. Phase 3 will also include the originally planned Hidden Doors, as well as several more books that would not seem to have been included in the original ten. Four Worlds Collide, The Black Ronin, Crystal Punks, The Cartographer's World Book, and Planet of the Cats, with the series culminated in End of a Century, a novel I suspect that was one of the original ten. That watching Endgame this summer, and also seeing people react to Game of Thrones ending, and also gearing <laughs> up for the ending of Star Wars, uh, which we still haven't seen at this point, I felt like having a natural breakpoint that could actually be an ending... I figured that if I got to Steamheart and wrote nothing more, that as a phase of books to read from beginning to end with this open-ended finale would be enough. Satisfying. Satisfactory. Mm. Uh, and if I can get to the end of phase two, that will also be satisfactory. And if I can get to the end of three, that will be triply satisfactory, and that really could be the absolute end for New Century. And no more books, no more anything. And while I've always prized quality over quantity, I can't get all of these stories told in just a few books. I don't like writing massive ones. It killed me when I had to do that with Steamheart. <laughs> I like little smaller books and being able to do it like in a more modular fashion, I've, uh, making them closer to movies and less close to massive long-form TV shows. Mm. But... I also learned from watching Endgame that you can change some things along the way, but you, like having a very clear idea in mind for an ending is a way of making sure that you don't preempt that too much and you save special things for that point. Mm. And just being able to... That, that was handled with poise. And watching... Well, hearing about the ending of Game of Thrones, it was like, oh, so this is what happens if you don't have a really clear ending in mind and if uh -huh. you very deliberately change things just to fuck with people to, yeah, to defy people's say, expectations I, I think mm -hmm. that one second sorry Sharon, sorry i could say right now i don't expect that ray in star wars will have a sudden turnabout and become a sith butcher of people and kill everyone in king's landing with her dragons neither do i expect that the jamie lannister kylo ren will be like after all of this progress i'm just gonna go back to my old shitty ways because that as we've seen is horribly disappointing even if it is ah but it's unexpected it's unexpected because it's nonsensical <laughs> <sighs> i mean none of that did happen but unfortunately, the Star Wars trilogy had its own unsatisfying ending, again because they were responding to the audience in the wrong way. Another tally for the aged poorly bits of this interview. Continue, Shep. Indeed. No, I, I was just thinking that the, the worst of both worlds is when you do have a very specific ending in mind, and then just because 
internet speculators mm. who will do that and um, by sheer law of averages some of them are going to hit on the correct answer yeah. um you you go oh we can't possibly put something out that people know about let's change it entirely with this thing i wrote on the back of a napkin perfect example mm. i've got in mind i know who mr white is bunch of people <laughs> are speculating who is mr white if someone guesses correctly i'm not going to go Shit. They guessed. Change it. It's Carl all along. You can, but this thing. No one expects Carl. It's unexpected. It's unexpected because it's nonsensical. You can't. If you change who Mr. White is. Yep, now, it was me, fuckos. If you change who Mr. White is. Now, it's me, Austin. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> this must be. One of the longest-running jokes that we have kept alive in Through the Window, largely based off of Toby's love for this bit. Hearing it again is a clear indicator of why that's the case. All of those threads that you have set up tying him to people, whether people see them yet or not... Him, in inverted commas. Them... Uh, those threads will not make sense if you change who that character is. Indeed. And I, frankly, would kick your ass from here to Bedfordshire for that. But it would be unexpected. I know. (laughs) But you know what I'm like with character consistency. Conversely, as I've said before, knowing exactly who each character ends up with, if I'm going to start pairing them off into long-term relationships, that doesn't work with the way I write characters. They're alive. They need to grow. The person I intend for them to end up with may not be right for them, and vice versa. So I'm not going to force them into scenarios that become nonsensical. But again, the, the, the George R. R. Martin thing spooked me. That's why I started this summer going, right, I'm going to write, like I said, I've got 18 books planned. I'm going to write the next 10, and then when I'm done there, we'll start re-recording. And then I couldn't quite get through one. So what you're saying is you want to write like you're running out of time? Yes, yes I do. But as it turns out, producing School of Movies and a whole separate extra feed of bonus content is quite time-consuming. A little bit. takes a lot of my creativity because I give my all for School of Movies. So it is a big juggling act. So um, when it came down to it, I wanted to be able to get to the end and go there. I've done what George couldn't and I actually have the ending finished and this is the last book and then we will deal with the adaptations after that. That way... If Paris the Thought I'm Not Here, someone else can handle the adaptations. But as it turns out, that group work in bringing it to the, the audio is really kind of key. Going, and I've slumped in between time. I've started writing again in the past week or so uh, to get to get this thing done. And it's been fantastic because I've, I've, I've been like, God, I can't go back to writing. And I finally um, got it squared away in my head. And uh, it's it's now flowing very easily. Oh, you sweet summer child, 2019, Alex. It was writer's block, effectively. Mm. So, what's your question here? Hang on. Um, how much do, of my past and future works do I plan out in advance? Loads. <laughs> 18 books worth. I, I plan like I'm running out of time. Uh, and uh, a lot of... Like, Annie's death, I had prepared back in 2013, when she was first appearing in uh, the cartographer's handbook, uh, I was like, right, okay, so this 
is going to be the end for Annie. And I had that. It's a tribute to another character death in a book series that I love, which is heartbreaking for me. But I, I figured that it actually is entirely in keeping with her character. Like some of the things that I don't plan at all turn out to be some of the things people love the most, like the the extra hurrah chapters, just that little like bits. And it's like things like that can emerge just from not having everything absolutely set in stone. But like Steamheart was planned, but then I ran up against that brick wall of uh, of I need to get this thing you know finished, and I actually don't have time to write because I'm too busy editing right now. So I something needed to be done about my creative process, whatever happened. And I think the way we did let them go ended up being maybe the most conducive to getting it done smoothly relatively quickly and actually getting great results in terms of quality there's always going to be something that gets in the way but the important thing is to use all the tools in the toolbox to keep it moving i guess that means that toby and i are enormous tools it's having a destination in mind but allowing for those little Mm. tangential detours here and there along the way Mm. oh uh, and you mentioned before the uh, autographs that Abigail collects. Mm-hmm. She can't get all of them because, uh, uh, as you said, uh, several of the uh, characters are now dead. She can never meet James Gregory because, as uh, said in the uh, cartographer's handbook, he was stabbed to death in his bunk. However, James did meet James Gregory. What? Have Anybody? we seen that? You have oh, heard wait. that. Huh. It was a little throwaway line, but I want and I wanted to uh, um, get uh, the the voice actor back just to, to to voice one line for it, but I never managed to get uh, in touch. It was when James was a kid running away from the Wendigo before he uh, ends up back at his house in that bit that's basically straight out of Empire of the Sun um, oh, wow. at Belworth. I was roughly pulled to my feet by a Scotsman with a grim face. He pushed me towards the edge of the crowd and told me to run. I glanced back again to ascertain whether my parents' faces could be seen, but I was unable to even make out the coach anymore. Such was the human swarm I now stood at the periphery of. That was James Gregory fleeing New York. After oh, I never figured out who that was. I, I was master. certain that would have been someone we recognised, or maybe someone who would come up later, but... Mm. Okay, wow. Um, again, this is one of those, like... Pottermore things where it's like that doesn't it's nonsensical it's it's not entirely nonsensical he was fleeing from New York uh, and 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 that's the uh, that he was uh, among the refugees so it, it was there but I didn't really give enough clues that anybody could work that out this is why I'm saying it here because there are a couple more little uh, scenarios like that where I- I've left things for people to pick up on and they haven't and it's fine. Maybe in, at some point in a few decades someone might catch it. Maybe it'll never mm-hmm. be found. So far, the award for most long-running Easter eggs uncovered goes to special Windor correspondent Timu Helizhayo. Well, that leads very nicely on to my next question, which is that in the podcast episodes, there would be epilogues which provide little glimpses of hidden details of the world of New Century, things which, if you just look to the side very briefly, you might catch the tale of something, some intriguing thread that we could follow, but is just there. 
Is that something which you may return to in the future, or do you find that the material you come up with is compelling enough that you end up wanting to put it into the final version of the novel for everyone to enjoy? There were a couple of times when uh, one very specific moment was uh, I I crafted out a a bathtub scenario at the end of one of the episodes uh, where... um, Butler and Jeremy were sharing two separate baths next to each other, which was a little reference to the scene in um, Shanghai Noon where they're playing that oh, crab drinking yes. game. Um, <laughs> but it was that they were talking about a, a unicorn on, on, on a picnic, and I was like, this scene sounds delightful. I'm going to actually write <laughs> this scene. And I did. And then I ended up putting it back in slightly before that epilogue. So if you listen sequentially now, you get that scene and then several episodes later i mention that that happened as though you hadn't just heard it which is kind of uh, baffling but the reason that i've kind of stopped doing that is because no one ever talks about them it's a lot of effort to come up with extra character detail that uh isn't just sort of top of my head bullshit and uh <laughs> you know i if i put something down about someone it has to be tasty. It has to feel like it's mm. it's relevant. And this was my kind of version of Pottermore to be able to sort of add some extra flavor. To, you know, as they passed through a place, here were some people that they met and maybe you know, something went on there. And uh, th- there was a, a mention of um, they drove through a place that had no sheriff anymore. And it's probably better that they didn't know that. That's a place that I'm actually entirely pl- intended to go back to at some point in a later book. And I was just laying down the seed of that there. Mm. And in an ideal world, I'd be able to think of a new one every single time I write the credits. But sometimes I'm just fucking exhausted and I don't have something brilliant at the top of my head. And I'm like, what happened in this chapter? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> and I don't just want to go around making shit up and I don't want it to be just nonsensical. <laughs> That's becoming a meme now. <laughs> oh. yes, it is. So that's your new catchphrase. It's nonsensical. So uh, that isn't how the force works. <laughs> yes. Do I, am I going to bring that back in future? Maybe if I think of a couple here or there. But like I said, the fact that no one notices them apart from uh, you, Toby. I think it's a lot of effort to put in just for one or two people who actually listen beyond that point of the credits. It's funny because that was always something that I was, by no means do I mean this to come across as, oh, why aren't you doing them? Put them back in! (laughs) This podcast is not a form of misery, dear listeners. Don't worry, I don't have Alex chained, uh, tied up to a bed. Uh, (laughs) Wait a minute. Get out of the Um, car, can do this steam craft! I was going to say, you may not. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. And on that bombshell. (laughs) The thing I admire about Toby is that he was always not just quicker on the draw than I was, but he had a level of comfort in regards to talking with Alex and Sharon right away that took me a while to get used to. I had been chatting a long while with Alex via text at that point, and I even made a connection with Sharon through movie therapy, which we'd done in early 2019. But that first time I was still very nervous, hoping I didn't put both feet in my mouth. Text is just an easier medium for me. Of course, I'm much better at it now, but Toby specifically was very easy to talk to, and that's part of what made Through the Wind Door take off. No, I mean, I always enjoyed it because, to me, what it reminded me most of is in Gravity Falls, when at the end of each episode Mm. you would have 
little uh, things, yeah. Yeah, little, um, I forget the name of the puzzle, but it's a little code, which sometimes it was just a gag that clearly Alex Hirsch or one of the writers would have put in. Other times it is actually hinting at things that don't even come into the actual main thread of it. And Mm. there's all sorts of little things like that. This just reminds me that I got distracted from Gravity Falls again, and I need to catch up on it so that I can finally actually listen to all of the School of Movies episodes on it soon. I always really loved throwing out my two cents into incorrect assumptions of what those little endings might mean. But they're always a lot of fun. And going back to what you said earlier of if anyone writes this, I'm not going to change. Please don't take any of my it's nonsensical uh, assumptions of where the story is going. Um, The the other I think that you reminded me of one bit where I talked about uh, it was one of the end credits of. It was the penultimate episode of Let Them Go, and I mentioned uh, that uh, those voices would be heard again in this house, and that was interpreted by not just you, but a couple of people as, ah, so that is definitely putting a pin in, these were definitely ghosts, and I wanted to say, not necessarily, but uh, everyone was sure because of that, so I felt like, oh, all that subtlety, all of that, it could be one or the other, just nailed to the post at this stage, like uh, the, sh- uh, the the pantry door being opened in The Shining. So uh, that, that wasn't my intention, but you, you, like, that's the thing about uh, making, you know, elaborating on things that are uh, perhaps meant to be better off as being mysterious. When you say, when you're talking about the epilogue... Then again, that's like doing a whole podcast and putting all my time into a podcast, and then no one says anything about it apart from, that bit with that music was good. And it's like, that, that wasn't me. That was just a music choice. <laughs> and it's, it's like, that was a whole, like a school of movies where a whole week goes by and no one says anything. I, I thrive on not necessarily being buttered up, but people noticing shit I've put in there. Uh, and, and, and like little bits of like, oh, that was really good. And, and this, this helped me to understand that. And, and, and like, I, that's fuel for me. So when no one says anything, I'm like, say things. And, <laughs> That's a weakness and an addiction on my part. And and obviously it helps me write when I get that kind of feedback. And as a reminder, folks, the nicest way you can say something positive about my work would be a review. One of the books on Amazon. If this work affected you, setting it there allows other people to make their choice reliant on your ringing endorsement. So that's the best way to help an author. And as I look now, it appears Steamheart has only one rating on Amazon. So if you got something out of it, please do let other people know. Clarifying something, when you're talking about the epilogues, you're talking about the epilogues at the end of the story. There wasn't epilogues at the end of every chapter. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, You've only listened to the Bandcamp versions. If you went back and listened to the podcast versions, uh, at the end of the credits of each one where I I list everyone on on Patreon, there's like little snippets that you can actually Uh, hear, little, little details and bits and bobs. I feel like I should assemble one podcast from Steamheart where I put all the epilogues in one go. That sounds like a cool idea. (laughs) Alex did finally do that in early 2023 for all the little bits from Let Them Go and Steamheart. But the only way to hear them is on the Patreon feed. Look up Steamed Easter Eggs to find the complete collection. I didn't realize that there were... 
stingers at the end of every story until I went to the TV tropes pages that uh, oh you mean was, the like the major stingers at the end of every like a, a major one that yeah. hints at a later one yeah no that's yeah. a different uh, kettle of fish I'll still keep doing stingers uh, but again a lot of people don't catch them because you've got to sit through credits to get there you'd think but, by now with all the Marvel films out there it. people would notice well that's the People people expect that with Marvel, yeah. um, but there aren't many people besides that that will go ahead and do that. I mm. think I've seen it maybe – there was one at the end of the second of the Happy Death Day movies, mm-hmm. which was hilarious. Um, yeah, but- Pirates of the Caribbean, the Curse of the Black Pearl had a little monkey thing in it. and uh, yeah. the, the, In fact, all the parts of the Caribbean films have got little stingers in there. Ferris Bueller's Day Off has got one. Yeah, no, I remember that yeah. one. But, uh, I mean, but it, mine were, were very much um, from the word go as of 2013, which would have been around the time Iron Man 3 came out. Very much kind of a little nod towards the way Marvel do it. And just, um, like, if you can sit to the end of the credits and hear that wonderful piece of music by uh, Kevin MacLeod, Thunder Dreams, and hear all, all about the production team, every single one of them's got something at the end, as far as I can mm-hmm. tell. Even if it's uh, at the end of Secret Rooms was originally just a growl and the sound of Harau's Jungle. In this case, Alex must be referring to the original release of the Secret Rooms audio drama. Because when Secret Rooms Definitive Edition was released, the stinger was instead a scene from Chapter 7 of the Arlington audio drama. Coming to the end here... For a while, you had available to the fan base several roundtables discussing the creation and the subtext of the various books of Phase 1. You eventually removed them from circulation, and you went into a whole discussion of why you did that uh, at the end of the Let Them Go Christmas Thieves roundtable. Mm. I associated a meaning behind that at the time because I had been very heavily listening to everything that Lindsay Ellis ever did on YouTube. Ah, the death um, of the author thing. Yeah, but I, now that I've he- heard you explain, uh, I understand that there's there's nuance to it and that part of it is perhaps, you know, people will take away from your stories what they see reflected in themselves, yeah. but this is also to you about... I think you answer building- your own question here. This is <laughs> It's very incisive. <laughs> You specifically talk about building your own fan base by encouraging people to ask questions and come up with answers instead of you handing it to everybody Absolutely, on yeah. plate. Especially but, asking questions and speculating about it with each other rather than just asking me directly. Yeah. But I, I'm curious if you would talk more about what led you to do that uh, and about the potential difficulty when you want to say something with your work – but you don't always have control over what readers take away from it. Um, I think I the, the important things are made abundantly clear in New Century. I think I leave that certain things are up, up to interpretation and, and um, you can take from... Like, Sharon, you said the other week that regarding art, you said at the end of the Shining episode, mm-hmm. that people only get out what they bring along with them and that, that no one's had their mind changed by a piece of art. Yeah, I mean, that was that was Kubrick's wording and I don't agree with him entirely, but I think 
man had a point. That, By and large, yeah. yeah. It's, it takes a rare piece of astonishing art to really change someone's mind. If you, I think mainly because when you go into appreciation of art, your, your emotions are stronger than your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And in, just in terms of the actual physical thing that carries them Mm. thoughts are effectively electrochemical impulses emotions are those chemicals themselves Mm. they are more permanent well i mean they're not like permanent permanent but they they have more weight to them they're more substantive Mm. and so an emotion is a harder thing to change than a thought yeah there's a lot of quotable moments from alex and sharon over the years Funny moments, angry moments, melancholy moments, and sometimes moments of profound wisdom. What Sharon is describing here is something I think I understood on a subconscious level, but I didn't really grok until she said it over four years ago. And that's part of the reason I value School of Movies as much as I do, along with other people that are really good at talking about media. Because media is an insight into the human condition. And even if emotions are more powerful than thoughts, we still need thoughts to understand our emotional response to something. And if there's two things I got out of School of Movies, it's A, inspiring more thoughts about how I experience media, and B, being better at externalizing those thoughts. If we hadn't started with School of Movies, would Toby and I have been as good at discussing New Century? Maybe. Maybe not. It still would have made us feel very deeply about these stories and these characters. But I'm glad for the help of lots of big thinkers out there for giving us the tools we needed to do our work. New Century means more to us because we've been able to share our many, many thoughts about it. More specifically, the books themselves, there are a lot of people in them who are wrong. Or at least I will set up two or more characters making opposing, flawed decisions. And there are a lot of conflicts that don't have an easy answer, and that the book actually goes out of its way to not pass off with a, well, this person was right and this person was wrong. Usually if the book and the narrative and the narrator and my godlike perspective in this scenario is going to say anything hard, it's abusing people is bad. I was going to say... And that's, like I said, it's a pretty consistent thing throughout the whole Somebody who goes around chopping off heads... Yeah. He's wrong. Yeah. That is a bad thing. To Exploitation do. is bad. Yes. To, you know, uh, preying on those who are more vulnerable than you is mm. bad. Punching up is less bad. Yeah. It's like I have this scale as well. It's like hurting people intentionally yeah. is worse than hurting people thoughtlessly, but that is also worse than trying not to hurt people mm. but being unable to avoid it. But more specifically, if you decode a piece of art and or a piece of work that is ripe for being deconstructed and you put a lid on it and go there that is the thing i have decoded it you're welcome and here is all the meaning in that thing 
Uh, first off, you're a bit of an asshole as a, uh, a critic because you're closing that off for other people to, uh, to to go back in to say The Shining mm-hmm. at a later date and, and, and go, well, if you could interpret it this way or with more modern perspective, you could look at it, it this way. So uh, you're being short-sighted as a critic. But if you're a creator and you are laying down over an, uh, six or seven hours, here is exactly what I meant in Tiger's Eye. And you can interpret it any way you want, but here's basically what I meant. Here's all my authorial intent. Uh, I, I, never, I never actually said this is all it was, mm. but I went into such depth with Tiger's Eye, Princess Thieves, Arlington in particular, that it really took the work out. And we want to give you guys something to do. We want to make your brains go, oh, fuck, I've got to think about this. Camera slowly pans over to Podbean list of over 100 episodes spanning four years. Well, Toby and I sure did that. And I've got to talk about this as opposed to just, what does this mean? Oh, it means that. All right, then. Yeah. Or it then becomes static, dead. Worse, Mm. it doesn't mean that. Mr... It's not about nuclear threat, Tolkien. I'm looking at you. <laughs> well, no, he didn't like um, direct symbolism. No. He liked applicability. Yeah, yeah. And That's me, why I don't like him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, either way, my my point is that I'm making this for for us now and our and several generations who have access to it right now. But I would like it to be still relevant to people in the future and be of help to them then it would be nice to imagine that would be beyond the kind of strife we're going through in a hundred years time and that would be so much better as a species and that you'd look at things the way you'd look at a 150 year old book and it's like well we don't have problems with that stuff now Mm. how quaint Uh, but it also feels naive to imagine that we'll be beyond all of our shit read a christmas carol and go oh thank goodness rich people aren't mean to poor people anymore well that's fine glad we sidestepped that luckily poor people are not in need of assistance anymore since we all went super socialism and then as if by magic wealthy people and businesses started paying their fair share of taxes (laughs) <laughs> Big argument well, going on about that at the moment mm-hmm. in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Apparently people can't count percentages. Or more specifically, the Skeksis in 1982, we'll say this on our Dark Crystal show, they were like really great cartoon villains then. But now in 2019, they're like really acerbic, satirical creations. Mm-hmm. They've been brought to screaming life. Indeed. By applicability. Yeah. But I think, all right, to be fair, I am exaggerating, of course, and I don't dislike Mr. Tolkien. But it, I think what he means is... going to drop our listenership. As a, <laughs> as a creator, if you work in applicability rather than definitive meaning, then your work has a wider chance of being able to hit people in the right place. Hmm. Mm, to me it's as a creator saying this can only mean that seems like the equivalent of being a greengrocer and saying you can only use these vegetables for these recipes you can't (laughs) use them in any other recipe no ned just candy 90 (laughs) dollars gin and tonic do they mix Part of what I was thinking when I wrote this question was, so after you had created the Discord for for all for your entire oeuvre of work, uh, which was therefore a place for people to talk about these things, 
and I was I was very excited as I, I went through the different books, and I came to a particular conclusion about Gwendolyn's quote unquote father. Uh, what was his name? Uh, Coriolanus. Coriolanus. I kept thinking Cornelius. Uh, Coriolanus. Named after um, the Shakespearean character, same as Viola. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I, I came to a conclusion about Cornelius. Coriolanus. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a gibbet. No, uh... <laughs> it's not possible that you can still be getting this wrong. Oh, by the way, folks, stay tuned. At the end of this episode, we've got some more outtakes. In, in the case of Coriolanus, I came to a conclusion about him, mm-hmm. and only through listening to the roundtable for Princess Thieves that I started hearing some of your. You know, you decided to make Baltus a certain way so that you could make uh, Coriolanus more complicated. And after hearing that, I sort of felt like, oh, goodness, is my reading of Coriolanus now suddenly invalid? Did I I do something wrong? And so I I guess I sort of now understand a little bit why maybe giving too much information is, uh, is, is problematic. Not problematic. Words mean things. I can see why it affects artistic interpretation. It also doesn't change the fact that, having said that, I found, suddenly found myself wondering, oh dear, did I... Was getting this wrong somehow offensive in any way? Hmm. Uh, or, 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 I mean, maybe my interpretation wasn't wrong, but it still felt very judgmental, and so I, I had a... I had a bit of an internal conflict about that. He's a complex guy, but uh, I've I've written bad dad characters already. Mm. And uh, if it was going to be just that he's a complete sociopath, and Gwen left the palace still feeling in two minds about that, and he actually looks after her and smiles... If it was just going to be she's putting all of her eggs into a uh, a sociopathic basket that actually doesn't care about her, that would be a pretty grim ending. But even having said that, I don't want to be too much in service to future books that I'm not clear enough in current books. Because I may never write those future books. I could be hit by a bus tomorrow. We hope not. Yeah. I, I feel like... If you went back in and read The Princess Thieves again, or listened to The Princess Thieves, and paid particular attention to Coriolanus, and just tried to see if there was a way to corroborate what I uh, what, what your theory was on that, you might actually think to yourself, oh no, actually. And, and you know, that, that bit there suggests that there was something more, that maybe the author has a bit more, more faith in this. And also, this is exactly what I was hoping for. You were chatting with Finn uh, at this point, yeah, uh, on the on the uh, forum, and I was like, "Oh, okay, so this is going to actually develop into a proper back and forth of uh, you know, here's how uh, we we think about that." And um, it didn't really elaborate too much, and that was yeah. a shame. I did not remember that my nemesis relationship with Chris Finnick started that early. I'm kidding, of course, but Chris and I have had some heated arguments over the years, and I'm glad that we've managed to continue to have an accord. Because I definitely want him on the show at some point. And uh, I've always wanted the um, uh, the discussions to go further without me. And I, it's always tempting for me to wade in there and say, well, here's what I meant to do. And, uh, but that's uh, just the same as uh, – that's, uh, that's an even more 
uh, direct way of doing the um, roundtables where I explain yeah. myself completely and utterly. I guess what I'm trying to do is not rule out the readings of individuals and to not paste over them my intentions. All that being said, if those readings of individuals are wildly opposing to my own philosophy, I might say something along the lines of, no, not at all. Because I also don't want to be seriously misinterpreted. For example, if an individual draws from my work, ah, Alex is hypercritical of any form of faith. If confronted with that, I might have to say, uh, no, bollocks, that's not what I've said. Something I, I, I certainly hope for with Discord and, and other forums as well is that, you know, eventually there will be more complicated discussions about all of this because I feel it's it's all worth it's all worth getting into. Oh, and you keep calling Viola Violet. It's Viola, as in the twelfth <laughs> night. Like the instrument, not the flower. Coriolanus Viola. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a jack of all trades. I, uh, I, I can't. Uh, I'm not perfect at everything. I'm That's fine. Just, sure. yeah. I'm just happy someone's talking about Violet. I mean, I didn't write her. Um, that was <laughs> Lemony Snicket. But uh... <laughs> there are a lot of reasons I'm glad that we're re-releasing these interviews now. Finishing Steamheart, our four-year anniversary, a little late celebration of ten years of New Century. But there's a bunch here that I had forgotten. And this will all be excellent fodder to build off of when we begin this year's coverage of The Princess Thieves as well as The Christmas Thieves. You can definitely be sure we'll be talking about Coriolanus, as I will put my earlier perceptions to the test, reviewing the story bit by bit, and putting together all the pieces to see if I still feel the same way. And of course, Toby can rib me mercilessly about mispronouncing names. It's just occurred to me, actually, looking at one of the um, the Discord conversations, Greg, I think you referred to fans of the series as Noosin. Oh, no. And They're supposed to be uh, white scarves. I know, but that just it just made me think Noosenses, as in... Noosenses? aim to misbehave. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm referring to myself as a nuisance for now. Nice. <laughs> no, I... I, I was doing Nusen meant to be as a as a shortened form of, of New Century. Mm. If I did a plural form, I don't remember that at all. But goodness, that was un- that was a. I prefer that to there. white scarves, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, because of the double entendre. Okay. Yeah, it's got more of a. I mean, there was always a, a meaning behind white scarves anyway, but it ties it too much to brown coats. So mm. I, I, I like New Sense. I mean. Call yourselves whatever you wish, folks. I don't even like the word fan. So, <laughs> in this in this day and age, that's not shocking. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, there's no toxicity in the uh, new sense fan base, as far as I can tell. Fortunately, Alex has cultivated a good fan base in School of Movies, which means the same is true of New Century. It probably helps that both are small and manageable, but I'd always want more people to enjoy New Century. If only so we have more people to talk about it with. Have those conversations that fuel Alex, and honestly would fuel both me and Toby as well. What were some of your sources of inspiration for the nightmarish tone of Chapter 30, Through the Seven Door, and the setting of the green world where the Wendigos come from? 
It's an olive world, very specifically. Green sounds olive. fertile, and uh, it sounds mm-hmm. um, uh, like f- 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 verdant. F- verdant, yeah. It feels mm-hmm. like you know, things could grow here. Olive hued makes it feel like this it's is sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I went out of my way to make the planet feel like it was growing, but not in a healthy way. It's an unbalanced planet. Uh, and I think I said before that uh, it's... The alternate ending of Little Shop of Horrors, Audrey 2 wins and eats Audrey 1 and laughs at Seymour, then kills him, then takes over New York, and it's fucking horrible. And um, uh, Howard Ashman and uh, Frank Oz wanted to do this. They they filmed it. It cost millions of dollars. And uh, they showed it to uh, audiences, uh, test audiences, who were like, this is horrible. And... Uh, Howard Ashman said I love Howard Ashman this is the only thing he's ever said as far as I can tell that's like nope you're way off base there Howard he said when theatre audiences see an ending like that Audrey can come out and bow to them and they understand that she's not really dead and it's like no it's a horrible ending (laughs) so they were like fine we'll do a happy ending for you instead and it's like no what you did because the you know they, they end up somewhere that's green green not olive um and uh, you've got this another little audrey three in the flower bed so you've got this bittersweet ending of like the evil is um destroyed but you know you can never fully destroy evil there's always going to be a seed that's a brilliant ending you did brilliantly the second time mm. what i thought was what if audrey two really did take over the planet and the plant pods ended up creating kind of a a symbiotic, parasitic relationship with the flora and fauna around them. There's like multiple stages to this thing. You've got the blue flowers and you've got these bursting seed pods. And you've got, I, I charted out exactly how this would work. And you've got these eight creatures, which are an unwitting part of this, which all stems from uh, another of the major contributors to this world, which is nature documentaries, whenever they specifically talk about parasites, which are fucking nightmare-inducing. Like, Horrifying. Uh, yeah, do you ever see that one where the, uh, the snail's got, like, two pulsating maggots in its eyes and it, oh, it's, oh it stalks they, they, they're kind of almost ready to burst out of this thing's face and it's just so that it can attract a bird so the bird can eat it so the bird can shit these disgusting parasites and then they can move on to the next thing it's the way that alien is dehumanizing and they're just using you uh, as being horrific uh, I had never seen this thing before and I don't remember when it happened but I know that Alex eventually shared an image of that with me. It might have even been a moving image. And fuck, was it disturbing. Like, the stuff that I watched to prepare for the Saitash episode with the Rafflesia and everything like that, that was less disturbing than seeing that infested slug. I think the thing that I... I figured would be the most scary would be that rather than the ape like screaming in agony while it's being pulled into this uh, pod and, and like torn to shreds and eaten anyone can come up with that as a, as a horrible thing the really creepy thing about that was that the uh, ape creature goes from being angry at his friends to walking over to the plant pod crooning and trying to make it happy and looking for the red feeler and, and just 
the plant pod opening up like Audrey 2 and then the ape lying down on the inside as though Mr. Mushnick, rather than being eaten while he's going, oh, no, 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 actually did it voluntarily and how incredibly disconcerting this would be to see. And then just it tucks the ape into bed and then pulls it upwards to digest it, kind of like the sarlacc, which is why I had Henry say immediately afterwards, get us the fuck out of here. <laughs> so there's there's R2 in there, there's Sarlacc in there, there's nature documentaries, there's Alien, uh, there's Avatar in terms of what if we took James Cameron's wonderful world of Pandora and made it desperate to eat you uh, and not actually a wonderful beautiful place but a, a, a horrible sick place and the my version of, of pandora would be much closer to in the positive sense would be rama the these you know great mm. red uh, floral trees and the last major contributor was uh, skull island uh, not in king kong skull island but the peter jackson king kong specifically you know when they fall into the pit and yeah. uh, Andy Circus is like chopping away those horrible fleshy things and they like start to eat him and rather than playing big dramatic loud music it's just this horrible kind of uh, there's some choral elements in there and uh, it's just kind of like steam and breaths and, and it's just like nature slowly eroding these humans that mm. shouldn't be there. And it's like, you did not come to the right place, humans, and now you're dying for it. And nobody cares. Like, there's this... Mm. Uh, it's it's just how cruel and cold nature can be. And again, that scene is absolutely mortifying and terrifying. And mm. I think I just sort of just put all of that together to make uh, what Seth refers to as the world of Saitash into somewhere where as soon as you poke your head in, you'd be like, right, yep, nope, don't want to ever go in there again. World full mm. of nightmares. Thank you very much. It Partly because I wanted to have people go, okay, so that's how the Wendigo came about. And for them to feel like Jeremy's off his rocker for wanting to know more and for wanting to journey deeper in there. And for them to conclude, this is a place we should just never have gone to. I've never seen the Jackson King Kong, though I did see most of Kong Skull Island. But I still had enough to draw on because I had seen things like arachnophobia, tremors, a little bit of Jurassic Park and Sphere played into it a bit. Also, that one scene in Deep Rising, where Wes Studi is slowly being consumed by an underwater tentacle aberration. And that ultimately ties in with a Lovecraftian theme uh, at the very base of uh, New Century, which is sometimes if you get put in contact with somewhere you really shouldn't be handled in a very basic way in event horizon it, you end up effectively creating a channel to hell which is how this place uh, uh comes about only rather than it being like big and loud and dramatic and blood orgy like in that film it was like just no no it was just more of a sort of a a, a baleful quiet ominous mm. death it's sightash dandelions eat you yeah <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I just, uh, I just wanted to make plants as, as horrendous as they possibly could at that stage. Mm -hmm. It was very successful because I remember when I was listening to that chapter, I was in town just getting my groceries at, like, midday, oh, surrounded geez. by people, and I was terrified in the most sort of, like, I am as far away from this sort of setting as possible, and I just want to run home <laughs> right now. Yeah. It, the the, the tone of it killer. yeah 
the tone of it and the way you were describing it just there very much reminds me of uh, any of the Junji Ito books, the mm-hmm. sort of, and I know no anime, but uh, it very much has this, uh, any of his short stories have this quality of, you see these horrific sights, but sometimes the most terrifying things about it are that a lot of the time the people in those stories tend to just slowly sink into the horrific thing mm. because they're drawn to it or compelled to it. And as like the lack of struggle is okay next question next That's question right. uh, i i i think they, that is the equivalent of sociopaths for me when i i, I meet someone like francis fisher i, I francis was his dad wasn't he yeah yeah maurice fisher i wanted to get away from him as soon as possible and this world was the equivalent it's like okay there are terrible things son and they're awful and you don't want to go anywhere near them okay that's the campfire story about the awful place you shouldn't go now we're going to close that off and uh and uh, we'll now deal with other things that are a bit more complex but uh that that's kind of how I deal with terror by exposing you to it, enveloping you in it, and then getting the fuck away from it rather than wallowing in it for a whole book. I think if I was trying to do a genuine Lovecraftian book where it was just straight horror the whole way through and there was no warmth of human kindness in there, I would fail and I would not be able to release that book, which is why let them go maybe scary as shit, but there is so much humanity in there as well. Mm -hmm. Mm. All right, I uh, I saved the heaviest question for last oh, um, among mine, and uh, some further context here. When you first came to me and Toby to do this interview, and we started reviewing our various questions, uh, one of my first recommendations to him was, okay, we're interviewing them, they've invited us into their house, uh, we need to frame all of our questions as concisely as possible because they're the point of this is for them to answer them for them to speak Mm. now i realized in, in the writing of the questions and in the first interview that keeping us completely out of the conversation was not only impossible but not the point when you when you asked us to do this you weren't asking professional reviewers to to interview you. You were asking fans. You were asking the people that had thought the most about your books. Yeah. There, 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 were, there was a point behind it. Mission accomplished, uh, by the way. You guys have been really <laughs> insightful. Thank you. Um, yeah. But then this leads us to uh, one of the more complicated issues of our time, uh, something which I've had a chance to see a number of different takes on and I'm basically collapsing the waveform now by referencing it directly Um, a major component of New Century is that School of Movies is part of the paratext to your fans Uh, for those of you for those listeners that don't know what paratext is it is basically anything about the text the, the, the words that are in the book that one can use to influence the reading of the book. Uh, This can include details about the author, conversations with the author, anything that they've said or written about the books which are not in the books themselves. 
And in School of Movies, you can get awful intimate with components of your own lives as you relate how pieces of fiction have affected you. In addition to this, there's been a lot of discussion regarding relationships to the characters you voice act, and even as the characters are you, are the voice actors and are you and Sharon, it feels very clear that the same people that do School of Movies are also a part of this story. Does this affect your relationship to your fans, and what is the insight... What, what insight has the experience of rolling out phase one and your growing following social media given to you in how to frame or change said relationship? <clears throat> that is a mouthful and uh, tough to answer. Mm. What I have tried to do and this actually relates to something we've already kind of said is to try not to directly address everything regarding new century myself i really want this to grow outside of what i can say to people and i really want people to be able to talk about it amongst themselves rather than this being i have written this for you you may ask me about it and i will tell you things (laughs) Because that that becomes then... Pottermore. Yeah. It becomes like an ongoing Pottermore that I, I'm now kind of a moderator of a forum whereby I put out incredibly long posts in the form of chapters and episodes and then ask the people on the forum to respond to that and get some responses and then pounce on each one and try to uh, fulfill that person's queries and questions uh, myself. And that is not how you grow a fan base. That is not how you grow a readership. That is how you substitute the intimacy of friendship with the heady dopamine hit of being rewarded for something you've created. Mm. Sharon's just given me an I'm impressed face. So. <laughs> I'm going to... You didn't have to say that. I will try and leave it at that, Sharon. Do you want to add anything to it? Well, I think... I I do believe we have a slightly different approach to this purely because I compartmentalise way more than you do. Because I kind of have to, because all of the bits of my life and the things that I do with my day are very separate from each other. So I, you know, I go out and do my day job and I have my day job hat on and I come home and do editing and I have my editing hat on and then I have my podcasting hat and then I have my parent hat. and I got my wife apron and my mom hat. Exactly. <laughs> so all these, all these different parts of who I am interact with all the things that I work with in very different ways. So... Um, and in particular, I think with the the characters in New Century, I kind of I participate in their creation in as much as I reflect it back to Alex as part of the editing process. And when I voice them, I kind of put them in an envelope and give them to Alex to do with as he will. And at that point, although obviously the character has been informed on by me. I don't then tend to let that character feed back on to me, with the exception of what we discussed last time, that the more and more I've voiced Abigail, the more I think the walls have kind of melted a little bit between her and me, and podcasting me in particular. Yeah. Um, so I, I think 
yes, that sort of spillover is becoming a bit more of a thing for me, but that's relatively recent. <laughs> and whose ambulance was that? Was that was bus. my ambulance. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, they, wanted, they wanted everyone to know you were saying something very important. Indeed. I think also it's it's probably quite relevant that Alex does the School of Movies Twitter feed and the New Century feed is, although that's his personal account, that's the New Century feed. Mine, I, I don't feel like, although there are quite a lot of people who follow me that I very rarely interact with, I think the people I do interact with regularly, they're not there for New Century and they're probably not really even there for School of Movies. A, a little bit in as much as they're interacting with me. So I think I, I don't really see them as fans. <laughs> mm. That's uh, It's just not how I perceive it. No, I just, I feel it's, maybe it's more complicated for me than it is for others, but when Alex talks about the dopamine hit, there is a, I don't know what the term is for the opposite of a vicious circle, but when I, I first started reading New Century in, I started in April 23rd, I finished in August 15th, that's four months, and for, on a certain level, that's a little bit obsessive. That's hoovering them up. It's not how <laughs> yeah. I necessarily recommend it, although I did write them to be compelling. Yeah, and throughout all of this and afterward, I, I was I was touching base a lot because uh, all the thoughts that I had were, you know, I, I felt like I had to get them out while they were still in my head, otherwise I was going to completely lose them. And so therefore... When you when you did respond, I was getting a dopamine hit of my own. Like, yes, mm. I figured something out. Or yes. So dopamine was- ping pong. Mm. Yeah. I, think I was, was going to say, I think positive feedback loop would probably be the uh, best way. Yeah. Uh, so, that, yeah. That, that's the term, yeah. So, so trying to step away from that, especially, again, since the idea is for the fan base to grow, is it's, it's a little bit antithetical to me although it may also just be a creation of this is what people can do now. You can reach out and interact mm. with your uh, w- with your favorite content creators, and if they choose to respond, then it, 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 it can be a good thing, but it can also spiral out of control to become a bad thing. Mm. So, I, yeah, I I've, I've disappointed a couple of people that I actually venerated in my time mm. and felt like absolute shit about it, and I've tried to use those as uh, learning experiences to never get never get so pally with them or in, pally in my own head familiar. that I that I act. act like an asshole in a way that like, well, old friends, I can say and do whatever I want. And it's like, so when that, when I meet someone who acts like that with me, I was like, Oh, you are really in need of this particular lesson. And I don't want to have to be the one to give it to you. Mm-hmm. I think as well, the neither of you guys have really been like that, by the way. <laughs> well, that's really <laughs> the downside. I think of fandoms being able to actually interact with the, the creators that they kind of revere the work of is that, And this is not, by the way, me saying that creators shouldn't be held to account if they do things or write things that are socially irresponsible. But 
to an extent, the work is never going to get huge unless it can live apart from the creator. Yeah. And mm. this is one of the reasons why I think I find it just the amusing side of frustrating when the uh, okay let's use one of our favorite toxic fandoms the star wars fandom mm-hmm. when you get people who are being heavily critical of ryan johnson for example because they don't like what he created that to me is entirely barking up the wrong tree you are not participating mm-hmm. in a fandom at that point you are taking pot shots at an individual criticize the work by all means but when you start making it personal it's gone past the point where you really have a point to make i've been guilty of that myself I, that harping on about Zack snyder's weird objectivism and uh David Ayer's weird. Um, I mean, like we do that quite a lot. We, we get do. quite personal on our we show. Um, so, okay, maybe I should stop being hypocritical. <laughs> but, yeah. Although okay. there is a certain film that I won't mention, which is My Last Jedi, that I fucking loathe. I don't even loathe the film, just the discourse around it and the fact that it won't ever go away. And I have to, whenever I see it mentioned, go, it's okay, leave it. Don't want to be unhealthy about this. Don't want to. Don't want this to be the film that I won't shut up about. Mm. So it's it's healthy to recognise in yourself when you have have a serious vendetta against one particular thing. And notably, while I've lamented Zack Snyder's weird objectivism in the past, I'm not putting out. YouTube video after YouTube video about Batman v Superman and why it's so bad. Yeah, still the, the, the other element of that as well is that. We moved on we and covered a hundred other things. We don't <laughs> rake Snyder as a person, as a man. We rake the fact that he keeps telling the same story over and over again. Hmm. Yeah. Honestly, if you've got a problem with Ryan Johnson, that's fine. If you've got a problem with ladies having any agency at all, well, you're not listening to this. <laughs> Who's looking yeah. forward to Twitter in a month and a half? Not me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not looking at it now. (laughs) Four years later, and things have only gotten worse. Alex is barely on any social media outside of the walled garden of Discord, and Sharon doesn't even have a Twitter account anymore. Sorry, an X account. Thanks again for that stupid fucking branding decision, as well as every other stupid and or cruel decision Elon Musk has ever made. Sorry. It's not just Star Wars or Harry Potter or Marvel anymore. It feels like all fandoms have toxicity, except maybe that of School of Movies and New Century. There's toxicity in My Little Pony and fucking Undertale, which is mind-blowing to me. And it's not even just fictional media fandoms. Lindsay Ellis was chased off the internet over nothing. James Somerton was outright stealing the work of others and hiding behind his sexuality and his fandom when others tried calling him out on that, in spite of the fact that he was stealing from other LGBTQ creators. Joe Cat decided to stop being a creator because he was getting doxxed and death threats over a cute 30-second song fragment that he posted to YouTube from a Baldur's Gate 3 stream. And even the people that haven't had these kinds of run-ins are tired, retiring. Even on the School of Movies Discord, where we managed to have a great community, 
one where we've developed friendships and deeper bonds, have created things together, contributed and built something greater. I am still constantly aware of the fact that this is a complex web we weave where fandom and friendships are intertwined. Alex, Sharon, Toby, these are all people that I'm closer to right now than friends I have lost touch with thanks to COVID. The dopamine hit of a good episode of School of Movies is responded to by comments in Discord, conversations. Toby and I have been putting out a steady stream of praise and conversation regarding New Century, with major peaks every time we respond to a new book in the series. And I'd be lying if I myself didn't live for the moment when anyone, most often Alex, has something to say about an episode of Through the Window. When Alex told us that his newest book existed because of something I said in 2021, yes, he added that it's always possible for a critic to say something that can result in new works by a creator. But the fact that we are friends still makes me pensive and conflicted, worrying about doing the wrong thing in my own desire to talk about this media that has been a bomb over the last five years. And the truth is, we're all just groping in the dark here, trying to find our way through a changing landscape that is very different from the one many of us grew up with. All we can do is to stay aware and consider what we do as it comes. As Kristen Bell once said about Eleanor Shellstrop, the most important thing to do is to try. To keep trying to do better. You know what? I am looking forward to next week seeing a new film from Ryan Johnson. Oh yeah, Knives Out. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's looking forward to that. I th- yeah. Well, everybody in this room, anyway. This this virtual room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, right. so to spin this onto a, I guess, a more positive, uh, yes, like, line of thought. I wanted to ask. To be honest, I would love to ask this question to everyone who's been involved in New Century in any capacity, but. I ask it to both of you now, which is after finishing a full phase of an ongoing fictional series, what are you most proud of with your work on New Century? I love the fact that you said after finishing a full phase, as though everything goes in just self-proclaimed phases. (laughs) So, George Lucas, now you've finished this phase of Star Wars, what are you going to do next? I don't know, I was thinking of doing Willow. That's going to be good, right? I'm going to Disney World. Uh, Yeah, good point. (laughs) I can't believe I didn't get that. But, uh, yeah, no. Um, Yeah. I set myself this as a phase just so I could compartmentalize it because I work really, really well to going to doing things in a modular fashion. I will do like, um, okay, so I've got two months worth of uh, podcasts yet to edit together. So if I get them done in the next three weeks, then that's like a big stretch that I can then you know, use for writing. But uh, yeah, that, that's why I made them phases and also so that I could give it some kind of arc for over each story like, I, I've admired that what they've done about um, uh, that in terms of grand scale storytelling I even um, I don't know if you got to that bit in the uh, one of the because I sent um, you guys some of the now deleted and impossible to find uh, behind the white scarf shows on Tiger's Eye Princess Thieves the mosaic that uh, Harau comes across in the city of Isis I am more disturbed by that fact than any other scenario I have encountered in this place. I raise my head 
and survey the vast interior. There is nowhere to hide. I can see far into the distance, under this roof which stretches above us, adorned with... I have never seen anything like it. Drawings on wood and stone I have seen. My friend Lamal once depicted an elaborate hunt upon the wall of a cliff, stretching out ten feet wide. The size of this painted ceiling leaves my jaw hanging. It is awe-inspiring and beyond beautiful. I can see the birth of Rama blossoming from a flower of stars, the water and the wind rushing in on either side to clothe her. At her feet is the bedrock of earth, and above her the sun blazes down. This is just one of the images that stretches across the ceiling. Each is part of the greater design. Each retells a part of the mythology of how our world came into being. I can only recognize about half of them. I am stilled, thinking about how much has been lost to us. Since this was first enjoyed by the people, now long gone from this land. Uh, when she sees a whole tableau of stories played out across this beautiful Sistine Chapel-style ceiling. And... Um, it's no, each individual story is part of the grand whole. She's looking at New Century there. Huh. I don't remember when I first started using the Malcolm Reynolds huh gif as part of my personal lexicon, but this is probably the first time that I voiced it on microphone. It, it's something that I've, I've always uh, admired about Marvel, and when uh, people bitch about the Marvel formula, it's like, you are also seeing the grander thing that's happening here, the long-form storytelling with characters that no one else could ever possibly do. But, uh, yeah, that's that's what I've admired the most, to the point where I don't think I could just get not all of these characters into just a series of three books if this was going to be a trilogy like I originally intended. It's It's too expansive. But after finishing these eight books... Uh, what am I most proud of? I love how my writing shapes up, and I love laughing at it when I read it back in the edit with Sharon. It makes me feel like, oh, man, I, what I originally set out to do was to write a book series that I would really love to read. So when I'm like, oh, that was a good line, I, and I've completely forgotten writing it, that's not arrogance and I'm so good at writing. That's This genuinely delights me, and I specifically love seeing how... I, I, for, I forget bits of New Century, and then when I come back to them, I feel like it's rediscovering a little part of myself, and it sort of lives independently of me. I love the fact that it has that kind of uh, life beyond me. But more to that point, I love how we've brought life to these characters with everybody else, developing Hrau and Gwen and Rebecca and Amanda and the Nag and Harry and Oberon. It's so rewarding because Maureen and Theo and Spencer and Matt and Loretta take these characters so much beyond the keystrokes that I type. And of course, Sharon, it feels like, you know, of, of course, Sharon, but like you're there throughout the creative process, but there's a version of you in my head that I filter into a lot of these characters, male and female. And I'm, proud of what we've accomplished together with these, these folks. 
And it's not every character, it's important to note. Maureen doesn't feel anywhere near the way she does about Harau, about, say, Merlane, or even Tabitha. But, like, all of them have got one character that they fucking love. And I kind of want to write one book with just those characters, just to give everyone a treat. But, yeah, what I've, I've really enjoyed is that when I started this, I wanted to be able to write this stuff. But what we've gotten along the way is that the writing became so much more and it became more than just words as as they were spoken and held by these actors who have taken the characters to heart and really give their all in those cases. That's what I'm most proud of. Excuse me, I've got a waterfall in my eye. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Wow. So that more or less wraps up our initial questions, but uh, a little bit ago you you put a a new task to us. You showed us the coming storm, so to speak. You showed us the cover for Uncivil Outlaw (laughs) and asked us to come up with some new questions based on that. So just a couple more to go then uh this is a fucking doozy by the way what you've asked I, I was like what the hell am i supposed to say to this uh yeah and the it's it's actually it's a combination of very similar questions that both toby and i asked okay mm. uh, immediately afterwards but uh, with, with so many options. Sorry, I didn't mean to step on you, Toby. No, no, I was just going to say that, to be honest, like, after we saw the cover and we our discussion, our sort of private discussion was so, like, back and forth that, to be honest, I completely forget whose question was, like, who. <laughs> so, like, it was all sort of like, oh, what about this? And, like, it was that sort of uh, dopamine ping pong as uh, we yeah. were talking about earlier. So, please, Greg, uh, carry on. All right. <laughs> I had also completely forgotten that Alex asked us to do this. This is no spoilers for Uncivil Outlaw, by the way. The actual book came out in January of 2020, so months after this was recorded. I guess this is the first Greg and Toby React recording as well, which was one of the early episodes of Through the Wind Door. As I may have mentioned earlier, after recording our first couple of episodes on Let Them Go, Alex released the titles and fonts on Patreon of the then seven planned books of Phase 2, along with some concept art from Stonestring Maidens and Panther Soul. It's probably really funny to listen to now, back in 2020 when we knew nothing. And same here. All we were doing was guessing based on what we knew about Steamheart and what clues we could draw on from the cover. With so many options for future stories left open by the end of Steamheart and Phase 1, what made you decide to make the first installment of Phase 2 a story that continues bang on after the events of Steamheart with Abigail and James, especially when the cover seems to intimate that the focus is a conflict that is already disrupting the emotional accord that they came to in the final chapter of Steamheart? Okay. For starters, it was very much on the fence as to which the first book of Phase 2 was going to be. There was an, There's another one that's going to be the second book that was, like, I, I, I started launching into it, I started writing it, and I thought, should this be immediately what follows after Phase 1? And 
chronologically speaking, they take place in this order. So one of the main things that uh, I decided to do was to put it out in that order so that you got things in the order of the events that happened. So maybe don't read too much into the fact that Uncivil Outlaw is literally the first thing you get. However, what we could depend on in Phase 1 was that our heroes all wanted to be of use to their respective species. Uh, I mentioned this last week. That use always all seemed to run parallel with each other. They were all moving in the same direction. And by and large, the ones in charge were forthright and trustworthy because I wanted to present an alternative to the usual rebelling against tyrannical power. I wanted to show decent people in places of power trying their best and them being up against it. And that is useful to certain generations and it's a hopefully fresh take on dystopia. However, things change. Governments change. The fact that I've set this in America is because I'm very conscious of the fact that it is a country that slaloms back and forth. It goes in one direction, it gets sick of that direction, and then it slides back in the other direction. It gets sick of that direction, and it goes back in the other direction. And the better angels are constantly at war with the demons, which is what makes America so dramatic and such fertile ground for this kind of story about the battle for the human soul. Governments change, leaders change, people get tired and they want something new, and people get scared and they make rash decisions. So what happens when our heroes experience the revelation that they would have been of more use doing something quite different, or if they lose faith in themselves, or if they lose faith in the ones that they've always deferred to? What happens when they can no longer be sure that they aren't doing any harm? Sorry, I had to write all this down because it is re- it's really important that I don't misword this one. Mm. What happens when wrong and right are reversed? The conflict that you're going to see play out in Phase 2 is, again, something I've been planning for a long, long time, but it got a serious kick in the pants when the worst aspects of human nature began to publicly surface with no reprisal. When we started asking ourselves whether it was okay to punch Nazis. If we're going to be there at this point in time, then we're going to circle back around to it at some point in the future. It's nonsensical! It's nonsensical that we're asking if Nazis should be given a platform. And yet, here we are. Obviously, the media influence on Uncivil Outlaw that we'd most expect is Captain America Civil War, one of Alex's favorite MCU films, and arguably one of the best films of the MCU to date. But listening to Alex's words here, what actually comes to mind for me is the first couple episodes of Star Trek Discovery, which is very timely, because Alex just released a School of Movies episode on that show. There is something incredibly captivating in stories where people ostensibly on the same side are having a conflict over what the right thing to do is, and it comes to blows. Especially when each of them is making a cogent argument, and neither one is obviously in the wrong. At one point in the show, Alex reminded us of Paragon and Renegade from Mass Effect, which was always strongest when neither choice was 100% the best thing to do and both could have potential downsides that we couldn't be sure of till after the choice was made. And for that, and for the time in the future when this happens again, 
we're going to need books about rebellion against tyranny, even if that tyranny itself is presented conversely as a form of rebellion. Uh, And of course, a year and a bit later, we'd have the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, 2021. Like Tevi says, we hate it when New Century keeps being relevant. Yeah. I am very excited for this book. (laughs) (laughs) Edge of our seat here. And actually, from a certain standpoint, that uh, makes perfect sense, because if, if Phase 1 changed as the world changed, then... Uncivil Outlaw, I guess, would be the first opportunity to directly address that, where Steamheart only began to hint at it. Hmm. So, I guess this is our last question of the evening, but uh, Phase 1 was partly setting the stage for an ultimate history, but thematically it was about finding hope and making new family in the face of disaster, toxicity, and upheaval. If you can do so without spoiling, what are the themes you have in mind for Phase 2? Which I suppose you've already answered, but love to hear you elaborate on. Um, I'm just going to contrast the two, uh, because you put it really succinctly there. But to elaborate on that, Phase 1 was about survival and coming back from the brink. Uh, Cartographers was a manifesto of what we could be if we could unify our best intentions with our deeds. And everything else that followed beyond Cartographers' Handbook was the complications that arise from when that didn't quite work out. Because life gets in the way. It always gets in the way. It's also about undergoing terrible loss. Everyone alive in New Century, in what I'm going to call Centrum, that's what Merlane calls it, in the, the, the world where, as of 1872, the Wendigo were introduced, everyone on the planet has lost someone. So mm. it's about undergoing a grand-scale loss and having to hold things together to keep going one day at a time. Phase two, in my head, because bear in mind I've only written half of one book from it, It's about what we're going to do if we do survive. Is our response to polarise things further or deal with the complications? It's also about what happens after loss, how we're able to process it and alter our ideal of the future that we thought we were going to have. Again, it's that grief thing about um, believing that life was going to go one way and it went another. Uh, The fact that everything happens here in an alternate timeline means we have a very clear view our own history of what should have happened from 1872 onwards and it's not so everyone in new century is grieving the fact that time has diverged and how are they going to live now Mm. that's a really intriguing concept because that's like we've talked before about the state of nostalgia and Hiraith, where you are homesick for a time that's gone and you can never get back. What you're talking about there is homesickness for a world that should have happened but didn't. And how can you ever resolve that if you consciously, at least, are not aware of that world ever having had the potential to exist? Hmm. I suppose the uh, the equivalent for us would be uh, looking at the Star Trek future and going, yeah, wouldn't that have been nice? Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. 
A comment made all the more darkly humorous here due to certain Star Trek memes going around in social media about bad things predicted in Star Trek's past potentially happening now in 2024. So, maybe we'll still have a Star Trek future? But that future isn't without its own issues. And we've got a lot more growing pains between now and then. Mm. Only uh, if we also knew, oh, that was actually going to be the future, but we remained invested in fossil fuels in uh, 1978, and so now it's not going to happen. If we actually had actual proof of that... (laughs) It would kill me. (laughs) Come back, hairy aliens! Sorry, you won't get that joke unless you've been following along with Behind the White Scarves. Universal Mm. basic income and sliding doors that work... Magic without ever having to we were actually going to uh, be really into saving the environment, but Ted Turner's Captain Planet cartoon made saving the planet so fucking uncool that uh, everyone lost interest in it, and uh, so we didn't. Excellent. That's we, when the timeline diverged. We peek into a, an alternate dimension. Everything looks so fantastic, and we say, are you us in the future? And they say, no, we're you 10 years ago. Mm. <laughs> Somebody apparently found a photograph from about 120 years ago with a, a settler girl who looks a bit like Greta Thunberg. And they're like, Ugh. oh, my God, she's a flipping time traveler. She's Sam Beckett. There we mm. go. <laughs> Um, but the other thing is, and this is something that I actually put uh, in one episode of the YouTube series, uh, I also want New Century to be a world that you kind of wish you were there as well, where you, if you look back and it's like certain people get a lot easier time of it there now than they did then, and in some mm-hmm. cases than they do now. Create worlds that are in some ways at least, awesome and not just universally shitty. Yeah. It's boring to me to write only worlds that are fucking terrible, which is why the Audrey 2 world is a really fleeting in and out. We can't really learn about ourselves that much unless we explore worlds that have good and bad. Yeah. Which is why I think that Rama works so well, because it's it's this world which, from the first few chapters, you think, this is beautiful, and then you see the good and bad in a lot of detail by the end of that book absolutely then you go oh no they also have slavery yeah (laughs) god damn it is there any world where it isn't here i mean it's speaking to human nature which i guess in the case of rama we have to expand to sapient nature Mm. uh, when Yeah. Oh, yeah, I I was trying to think of a word that equated to humanity but would apply to the cats, and I came up with felinity. But it's an (laughs) unnameable word that effectively equates to decency. It makes me think of that one scene. We're not going to make it, are we? People, I mean. It's in your nature to destroy yourselves. Yeah. Major drag, huh? That's not a very hopeful concept, but it is highlighting that, unfortunately, as good as we can potentially make our world, it doesn't change the fact that just the way thinking people are, 
we are capable of great good and great evil. I, I don't remember where I heard that, but that's it's truism. And I'm pretty sure I did hear the sentiment framed similarly to that. But in a moment, Alex will also remind us that the book and the movie Contact put it a lot more poetically. No, I agree. And I think the statement, it's in your nature to destroy yourselves, is half of a statement. Yes, it is. It is also in our nature to save and elevate ourselves. Mm. It's finding the right balance. Mm. All right. Well, that's yet another heavy thing. Um, But that last question does have a follow-up, which is, what is quintessentially new century that will always be a part of the proceedings, whether aesthetically or thematically. So I'm just reading a quote by Carl Sagan here, because what you're just talking about reminded me of it. It's uh, in contact and it's uh, you're an interesting species, an interesting mix. You're capable of such beautiful dreams and such horrible nightmares. Yes. You feel so lost, so cut off, so alone, only you're not. Seeing all our searching, the only thing we found that makes the emptiness bearable is each other. Is each other. I believe I've just answered your question. <laughs> but if I could put it in less eloquent, eloquent terms than Mr. Sagan, um, what is quintessentially new century? Grief, both individual and shared. Communication, cooperation, finding forward momentum when all we want to do is curl up and die. And the need for laughter. Every book, even... The Cartographer's Handbook has that in it. So we're, we're all getting very emotional here. Yeah, it's getting a lot dusty um, in here. Let's have some outtakes quick. There's <laughs> also called Steamcraft. <laughs> yes, Steamcraft is the sixth thing. <laughs> I just wanted something that was uh, less terrible uh, than a car. Because uh, <laughs> if we could disinvent the car, that might might help mm. a little bit. Yeah, one of the things Mass that I transit love would be a better idea about uh, the Steamcraft, possibly not Steelborn, but certainly the others. Oh, you mean the electrocution mm. tank that can, that can kill a whole bunch of KKK dudes in one fell Tesla coil swoop? That's the one. We must be vigilant, my brothers. The n- may be gone from their stolen government positions. They may be gone from the earth. But more coons lurk in the gutters of this city, crawling up through the drains to take the white man's rifle property, his food, his wife, his job. They took our job. They took our job. They took our job. And we must never again allow a goddamn porch monkey to. What the hell is that? <laughs> Reports of there being a steamcraft present of even larger size than the one sighted during the Washington riots, bristling with weaponry and laying waste to fleeing, chinless white supremacists, are of course entirely unfounded. In a worst case scenario, attach horses. Yeah. Flexibility, that was always one of the cornerstones of Steamheart. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that was what uh, Harry meant her to be. Ooh, okay. Oh, by the way, when when Harry was describing back in Arlington um, all of the like bits and bobs, and like I I can have her dragged by horses, I was like, yes, because I know that she's going to need to be dragged by horses when they get to Green Hollow. Yeah, no, that that was that was not lost. Good. Yeah. 
Yeah, okay, so I, I think that, that'll do with our Q&As for the time being. I, I think we'll have another of these after... Phase two? Phase two. No, phase two. Fuck. <laughs> uh, we'll <laughs> have another of these after Uncivil Outlaw. How about that? See, see what we've uh, done in that book. Just, just one's fine, you know. Phase three is Love profit. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> it's a coping mechanism. I think I've said this before, that I use this to be able to get through the shit we're facing right now. So even if I, I look back on this and go, I didn't get a, a whole bunch of sales from this. No, but the person who did get a whole bunch of sales from their you know cheap, crappy little book that you look at and despise, and you should stop because that's just bitter, uh, I, they probably didn't get that sense of catharsis and that ability to be able to move forwards that you desperately need from that book. So there are reasons why this thing is of more use than simply putting money in your bank account and connecting you with more and more fans yeah i've always thought that ideally the point of any piece of art is that there is something in you that that needs to be expressed that needs to get out which is part of the reason why when i don't manage to create anything i find i find it's more difficult for me in general and hopefully if what you do is 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 done well then it can it can affect people as well as entertain hmm. and i am reminded of a, a section in terry pratchett's lords and ladies lords and ladies i'm trying to remember which one it is now no it's not lords the and fifth ladies. elephant it's the one that's the phantom of the opera they're discussing the opera house and the essence of it is that you when you're creating art you put in money and you get out art and anybody who expects Masquerade. to put in that's the one anyone who yeah. expects to put in art and get out money is probably barking up the wrong tree <laughs> <laughs> Hi there, hello. Hi there, hello. So listen, I started this new hobby where I draw little birds. I like that a lot. I like the look of that. Yeah, little chubby birds, but they're happy, and that's all that really matters. Nice, nice, nice. So what's the plan? What do you mean? How do we turn this into a business, make some money off of it? Oh, no, it's just, I'm just enjoying myself with this. Right, uh, yeah, of course. So, so... So that's how it starts, and then you build that into a side hustle. A side hustle? I'm just drawing happy little chubby birds. Well, for now you are, and that's the flagship drawing for sure, but by Q2, I think maybe you could do some happy chubby little lizards. Those would look good on the merch. What merch? Now, how fast can you vectorize that bird? We're gonna have to resize it, and who knows how big these prints are gonna get. I don't even know what vectorize means. Oh, you're gonna have to learn Illustrator. That's where you're gonna be drawing from now on. I like paper. (laughs) That's not where the money is. What money? What money indeed. I'm sorry to say, but we're currently in the red, my man. could we be in the red? I just had fun drawing a little bird. Yeah, and with no sales, we're talking paper, Sharpie, clipboard, Adobe Creative Suite, that corporate boat I just bought. We are all overhead right now. Oh my god, you're making this not fun. It's not fun. It can't be fun. We gotta kick this side hustle up into high gear if we want it to be the main event. I don't know that I want that. No, you do want that. That's the dream. That's everybody's dream. Okay, take a look at this schedule I drafted up. Okay, well, I don't want to wake up at 4 a.m. Well, they're asleep. You're at work. That's the grind, baby. Who's they? Now, if you're doodling, say, a hundred birds per day. That should give us a pretty good offering. Save a couple of special ones for NFTs. A hundred doodles a day. That's going to take up all my time. You're damn right it will. What else would you be doing anyway? Well, I mean, with my current job, I have a lot of free time to spend with my kid. We like to go paddle boarding together. It's really, it's really nice. 
Well, that's a waste of time. Okay, while you were talking, I got you set up on Etsy. The strategy being, we make you into a top seller on there. We break into the mainstream market. Before you know it, we're in Walmart. We got a Chubby Bird Netflix show. Ah, uh, can't I just have this little thing that I like to do sometimes? No, no, draw, draw, draw. Come on, we got an employee depending on us over here. Where did he come from? Hey, I'm gonna need a raise unless you want me to tweet about these horrible working conditions. Ah, uh, he's gonna cancel you. You better start drawing. Okay, 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 okay. This is the dream, this is the dream. Wow, my man, who knew that your little hobby could build this massive empire? Happy retirement. You know, what can I say? I've been miserable for decades. Yeah, 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 yeah. But hey, now you got nothing but free time. You can do whatever you want. You could, uh, paddleboarding? You like paddleboarding, right? You could go paddleboarding. That's what I was already doing before this. You were, yeah, but not in the right way. This was the right way. This was the dream. I'll kill you. Oh my god. Okay, I think... That'll do. Like I said, we'll, we'll be back uh, with another of these at some point soon. Um, this has been really uh, rewarding, and we'll, we'll see about maybe getting some special guests in here as well, some uh, other cast members, see what we can do with that. Awesome. And we did do that at the end of 2020, although we won't re-release that interview until after we do a retrospective on Uncivil Outlaw. Which, at the rate we're going, will likely be in two years? That said, if you've been primarily following along only with the retrospectives because you had been reading the books and then listening to our podcasts on them, then there are also a whole bunch of interviews of the original New Century cast and their experiences all throughout Phase 1. You can look them up under the subheading White Scarves Team Up. If you haven't listened to them for fear of being spoiled on Phase 1, now is a great time to give them a listen. Some of them even have good audio quality. Last time when you asked us about our stuff, uh, I suddenly realized I was shilling Toby's stuff, and then the name of the blog where you can find it never got mentioned. (laughs) Tell us the URL for your New Century blog. Okay, well... uh... It's home at the time being, although I'm working on uh, putting it over to a blogspot account, but uh, it is called theinquisitivej.tumblr.com, and that's just the inquisitive and then the letter j.tumblr.com. So that was a name I thought of about best part of a decade ago, and I'm stuck with it, but uh, I'm happy with it so far. Yeah, it's uh, something I've been running, and... It is not just a new century. I've uh, here and there been doing things on just anything that resonates with me. And uh, that was something that I was thinking about just at the end of this, talking about art, that you have to kind of express something that comes out. And creating something is that ultimately these things get put together by me as and when I can make time for it. But I put them together because the thing I'm writing about really resonated and I want to provide some sort of other half to the conversation. Mm. During the last edit, I realized that I didn't actually go back to look at his Tumblr to see what he's posted since. Only to find out that the most recent post was very recent, alluding to a future creative endeavor called the Zeta Project mentioning our little Labor of Love podcast, and also that we hit a major breakthrough by diving deep on something we 
by diving deep on something else we felt passionately about, the Insomniac PlayStation game Marvel's Spider-Man 2. All three episodes of that have been released now, and the first one is entirely spoiler-free. I would, of course, encourage people to play the game, because I'd love for people to hear what we thought of the rest of it. Although I also know that can be a big ask for those that don't have the money to own a PS5. There will be plenty more non-New Century content, though, as Toby and I, as well as a few guest stars, make multiple trips beyond the wind door. And from myself, uh, last time Toby quipped, watch this space. Well, guess what? I, I don't have a place for it to live yet. Anyone who is interested in anything that I have to say can either follow me when I'm uh, on Discord or alternately on Twitter. I live under the handle Mighty Greg Doge. I had a moment just yesterday after seeing the most recent episode of The Good Place and it was incredibly cathartic. I listened to it first thing in the morning on Hulu as I was getting ready for my work day and ended up thinking about it the entire way on my commute and the second I got to work I started writing and I've been tinkering with this for the last day and a half now. I think I finally have it in a place where I'm happy with it. I am definitely going to post a link to it somehow on my Twitter feed and uh, share that with with Discord. But the bigger thing is that I, I ran a test just before just before coming on to do this interview of actually voice recording it, and I am. 75% happy with it, that is eventually going to be a thing that people can listen to by me if they want to. Fantastic. And Brilliant. No spoilers, because we haven't seen it yet. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, yeah. <laughs> the essay itself mentions that there are spoilers for that episode and a little bit for The Good Place in general, but I'm probably going to need to keep tinkering with it before I can put it up anyway, but um, it's coming. And there's another thing I completely forgot about. The original recording is lost to time, as I have no idea where I hosted it, when I did. But the script is still sitting in Google Drive. So I guess, in addition to everything else, I might as well re-record it, with some good editing and sound quality this time. Put it out here to live, where all our other creative work does. Thank you both so much for coming on these shows. You've uh, you made them. Like, without you guys, we're just asking ourselves questions. <laughs> and our questions wouldn't be anywhere near as good as yours. Well, th- well thank, you, thank you again for, for giving us this opportunity. It, it's been big for us, and it's brought us, me and Toby, a little bit closer together as well. Before that, he was just, oh, I, I really like this, this stuff that he wrote. Uh, i got to know more about this guy. Uh, and it has been entirely our pleasure and Greg it has been such a pleasure to get to know you better and I will be very interested in anything you produce moving forwards even if you need to take as much time as you need I will just be happy to keep an eye out thank you okay let's finish with some more outtakes folks we will see you next time Uh, I've been Alex Shaw I've been Sharon Shaw. And see you around the multiverse. (laughs) That's what we say now. Is it? Oh, okay. Apparently so. I'd forgotten.
Because it's nonsensical. <laughs> some of those would be peachy. Mm, some of those would be peachy. Like Dr. Frank there. <laughs> oh, some of those would be peachy. peachy. <laughs> Men with furtive looks. Most of them concealing boners as they lipped a... B- 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 I don't think she'd say boners. Side note, I feel like Hra would not describe her paws as velveted. But I'm trying to... I just... I feel like that it doesn't sound like, yes, my hands are like velvet. It's not something people normally say, <laughs> especially in a fight sequence. I dodge and weave, evading most of the hits, but she has been studying how I move as much as I have... <laughs> Whoops. Harau says she wants new another brave warrior with one eye. Oh, duh. Oh, I just made the connection. <laughs> Sorry, it took me a second. Jesus. But I will get us there and back again. Stop. I have found the one ring and must return it to Mordor. Stop. Damn it. Sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't stop myself. When we're done here, and I really can't promise you anything, but this is worth following up on. We might be able to find a way to get the two of you home. You said that your son-in-law, Colby, had encountered an enormous white tiger in the woods of Clendenin. 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 I've never heard this word before. <laughs> the road forked southeast of Clendenin. We left Clendenin behind. But that's Malloy, I exclaimed. The crazy old bastard we met in Clendenin last year. Thank you. That's what I thought, too. Would you like to take a couple of horses? And ride out to Marietta and Clendenin. The next month, we make the journey out with a contingent of troops guarding James, Abigail, Hrau, Miguel, and I, and pitch up at Clendenin. After the Clendenin incident, James and I were granted a little rest and recuperation time. Clendenin. I've never heard this word before. <laughs> Jackson. 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 Don't use that one. <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> I'm Henry Jackson. Welcome to Jackass. <laughs> I'm supposed to be a professional. Uh, don't don't use that one. Penrose throw yeah. Penrose go through goes. <laughs> Penrose goes through many words with Miguel. And and that afternoon, I talked with these men about about carts that can move without horses and and bear heavy loads. And holy fuck, that's an ambulance. Just when I was getting excited too, I came up with a voice application. <laughs> Yep, for for the brand new steam-powered iPhone. So, as far as I know, it's pronounced Arkansas. But I know that there are some places in the South that really do pronounce it Arkansas. And I have no idea where that's regional to, or when that started or ended, so I'm gonna let you figure out which is the correct version considering you've done far more research on this than I have, and I'm just going to read it both ways, and now it's your problem. Ruined and torn apart and lost. I think there's a plane in that line, damn it. My kingdom for a recording studio. Scratch that, I'll trade a recording studio for a kingdom. And my kingdom will have a recording studio in it. They're clogging the axles! They're clogging the axles! Oh, sorry. I sound like Mickey Mouse, they're like, woohoo! They're clogging the axles! Y'all come back now, you hear? 
And that's the end of our first interview. Next time, more Doctor Who, and then the Steamheart epilogue. To close us out, one of the best movies of 2018 was Into the Spider-Verse, which had a killer soundtrack. But most people only remember the big names like Post Malone's Sunflower or the mimetic songs like Blackaway's What's Up Danger. So I chose one that gets a little less press, but that I thought works really well with New Century and Steamheart. The song itself charting in 2019. Until next time, this is Bo Young Prince with Let Go. Sometimes I don't really know myself Devil on my back, pray for me, Neo Angel in the front, trying to guide my steps Who do you call when you need some help? Who do you call when you by yourself? Who do you call when you feel down low? I just wanna scream, I just wanna explode I, I just wanna let go Devil on my left and an angel on my right. I'm just trying to live my life. I'm just hanging in the fight. Swinging off the web of life, gliding through the breeze. My uncle always told me that it never would be easy. Now I'm looking to the sky, hoping that he rests in peace. Balance in the streets, I just wanna come to peace. All these problems, I'm just fighting with myself and enemies. Looking for my peace while I'm looking for my peace. Yeah, I just wanna swing and fly away. I just wanna see a better day. I just wanna soar and never drown. I'm looking for my happiness now. I'm looking for my happiness now, yeah I don't really know myself Devil on my back, pray for me, Neo Angel in the front, trying to guide my steps Who do you call when you need